Hear the word of the Lord. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Holy, merciful Father in heaven. We give you thanks for your word which leads and guides, which convicts, which causes the deer to give birth and breaks stone into two. I pray that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to birth righteousness in us this morning. That your spirit would both convict and comfort, encouraging us and strengthening us to walk in the paths of righteousness all our days. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, when, when my father-in-law, who coincidentally happens to be here this morning, um, was a young lad growing up in, outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, you know, they were farmers, and he and his brother decided to play a prank on one of their hens. I'm pretty sure this story is true. If it's not, let's just say it's true uh, for this moment, and you can back me up uh, later, Harry. But uh, so what they did to this hen is they took a couple of their duck eggs, and they put them in the hen house. And after some time, these duck eggs hatched, and you know, they, the, the chicken, the hen, the mother hen thought these ducklings were chickens, and so they lived happily uh, in the hen house until one day the, the mother hen took her chicklings out for an evening stroll, and uh, they come upon a, a creek on their property, and uh, what do the ducks do? Well, like a duck to water, right? The ducks jump in the creek and start swimming around. I don't know if you know this about chickens, but chickens are not water creatures. And so the mother hen is freaking out because she thinks her baby chickens are about to drown. And so she's squawking on the shore, uh, you know, trying to, trying to get them to come in. She's like testing the water, but not sure if she should really go in after them. And it's just kind of hilarious scene. It probably played out better than what you and your brothers could have imagined it would have uh, happened. And, you know, I think in this story, though humorous, there's a simple truth. It's that your identity, right, who you are, will always come out of you in what you do. Even if you grow up as a duck in a hen house, eventually you can't help but that you are a duck and you will do duck things, like swimming in water. 
And in our you know, passage this morning, John is continuing to draw on these themes of Christian identity. Who are we? And he's saying, you know, this whole chapter saying, listen, I've made you my children, and so you are. You are my children. And because you are my children, you can't help but act like my children. It's going to come out of you. It's impossible for it not to. You know, as Ian mentioned last week, that you've been given this new nature. You've been born into God. And and just like, you know, my children can't help but have my DNA in, in them, you can't help but have the DNA of God living inside of you. And so if this is true of us who believe in God, who believe in the Son, Christ, what is that thing that the children of God can't help but doing? What is the thing inside of us that we can't stop ourselves from doing? What is that identity marker for God's children? Well, just like the duck can't help but enjoy the water, but John is telling us this morning that a Christian can't help but love. It will come out of you. God is love. And his children will love like he loves. And this new nature of love actually is the thing that gives us assurance that we are saved. It's this thing that gives us assurance of faith. And I think at least one of our problems in this is that, uh, in a problem that John addresses for us, is that we get confused about who we are. Who are we? Because we struggle with our loves. We don't always love like our new identity tells us we ought to love. Sometimes we act like we're part of a different family. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle even with hate. Right? We struggle with our old identity acting like Cain and, and our heart still condemns us and says, you don't belong here with God's people. Right? This is a real struggle for God's people to overcome. Right? We want Jesus, we want to belong to community. You want to be transformed. We want to love. But oftentimes for us, that transformation is slow, isn't it? And sometimes it can be so slow in your life that it makes you wonder if your true identity really is a son and daughter of the living God. Right? How can it be true, our heart says to us, that we are the children of God if we still struggle to live like his children? And what makes this condemnation from our heart so dangerous for us is that, is that when we begin to believe in this verdict from our heart that we aren't good enough or loving enough to be loved by God, we inadvertently make being a child of God something that rests on our own shoulders to accomplish or gain for ourselves as if it's something we can earn and something that we can lose. Chasing a verdict is as if we could be good enough or loving enough to become his children. And so as John in this topic of Christian identity seeks to both uh, encourage and comfort the church and challenge the church. He, to warn and comfort the reader, he does this, I think, by pointing out there's three distinct things about the Christian identity which is marked by love. And these are the three things we're going to explore this morning. The first is this, the absence of love, which is kind of this anti-identity. The, the second thing is the presence of love, which is, you know, love defined and personified. And then the, the third, last, we're going to talk about the assurance of love, which is the confidence that we can have that our identity really is as children of God. So first, the, the absence of love. Well, this section begins in verse 11 like this. For, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So this is kind of tying this section back to the section before. You know, the message is all of time is that the children of God are marked by their love. In verse 10, just before this, you know, John writes that, that love is actually the evidence for us of whether or not we are children of, of God or of the devil. And then he shows us this truth uh, further by showing us what happens when love is actually absent in our lives. What does the absence of love look like? Look with me at verse 12. He tells us, kind of, he starts with what we should not be like. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 
And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Saying this, like when love is absent in your life, you get Cain. Who was Cain? Well, Cain was the son of Adam and Eve, right? Older brother to Abel. And when God rejected his offering and accepted the offering of his younger brother Abel, what happens? Well, Cain, who is of the evil one, it tells us, which is speaking of the devil, gets so angry that he ends up murdering his own brother. That's why this, you know, this happens in Genesis 4. This is the first story when they get kicked out of the garden is of this scene of these two brothers and Cain, growing in jealousy, hates and murders his brother. That's why this Cain was a man who was created in the image of God, just like you and I are. Cain personally actually knew God. He, he spoke with him. But the extreme absence of God's love in his heart led him to a place of hate and murder. Why? Well, he tells us here, because his brother was righteous, actually. So Cain was wicked, and, and the wicked hate the works of the righteous. And he carries this theme into verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So in this, John is showing us that Cain is representative of the world, right? The wicked, uh, just as Cain murdered Abel for his righteousness, so that the world continues to do that to the righteous today. We're persecuted because of our righteousness. Why was Jesus killed? Because he was wicked? No, because he was righteous. Why was the church persecuted in Rome in the early church? Uh, because they were wicked? No, because they were righteous. They, they wouldn't bow to Caesar. Why is the church persecuted in China today? Because they're wicked people. Well, no, it's actually because they're righteous and they won't change their beliefs for the sake of their state. And the warning is this, is that the absence of love doesn't just make you a bitter person. The absence of the love of God causes you to hate the righteous. You don't just become bitter. You, you begin hating God and the things of God. It's an active thing. When love is absent, we are left with hate and death. This is what it says here in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Right? So he's saying if you don't abide in the love of God, there's only one other option. You abide in death. And this word abide is this very biblical word that, that, that's used throughout. It's talking about dwelling, right? To be united, to live in this place. Hate causes you to dwell, to live in death. There's no in between here, right? The love of God brings about life and the rejection of the love of God brings about death in your life. When love is absent, you bear the mark of Cain, which is the mark of hate and death. And when Jesus clearly connects for us in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, right, if you have hate in your hearts towards your brother, you're, you're guilty of, of murder. It's like, well, how is that murder? Well, because to hate someone is to want them to die, isn't it? That, that's the end result of, of hate. And, and if you've gone that far in your heart to hate someone, it is a mark of death. If hate is in your heart, he's saying, you are as guilty of murder as, as Cain was, which is what John affirms for us here in verse 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What John is saying is that if you struggle with hate in your heart, there's a stark warning here for you. Because if you hate, it means that love is absent. They don't, they don't coexist. And for God's children, love can't be absent. It's the DNA of being born again. He's not saying if, if you have hate that you can't be forgiven. But he is saying that if you've given yourself over to hate, you are walking counter to the ways of God, right? You're walking in, along the path of the wicked. And he's saying, we must reject this path. 
In this, John is equating some of the false teachers that have risen up in the church in this time with Cain. And he's encouraging the church against them by saying, reject these people, reject this path. We must reject the path of Cain because it's the anti-identity. It's the absence of love which births death in you. And you are the beloved of God, so reject this path. And like, you know, good wisdom literature, kind of like Psalm 1, which kind of gives you the path of the wicked and the, and the path of the righteous, John is kind of setting up these two pathways for us in such a way that right, nobody in the right mind here would say, yeah, I want that path of death and hate and murder. That sounds good to me. Uh, no one's going to say that. So, so what is the way forward? If this is the, the anti-way, what is the way? What, um, what does the presence of love look like? When well, this is what we find here in this next section, we find the presence of love. The presence of love. And just like, right, the absence of love, right, leads to death and acts of death, which is murder, right? So the presence of love leads to life and acts of life, which is love. We see this here in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we have to lay down our lives for our brothers. So what is love? Love is laying down your life for others. Right? Where, where hate seeks to kill the other, love lays down its life for the other. You know, it's interesting, in both of these scenarios, someone dies. Right? When you hate, the other person dies. You murder, but when you love, you die. Right? You lay down your own life for the other. And Jesus is the, the model for us, right? The, the extreme presence of God's love and the person of Jesus led him to the supreme act of love, which was his own death on the cross to cover all our sin. Right, to be born of God is to be made like Jesus, and it makes us into people who, like Jesus laid down his life, we laid down our lives for each other. Right, love isn't just something that we say, it's something that bears out in what you do. And the action of love here is self-sacrifice. And for anyone who's ever been in a relationship with anyone, you know this to be true in your own lives. Right, the best friends that you have are the ones who ask questions about your life, who listen to you, who are there when it's inconvenient for them, who are willing to serve you, and, and you know because their lives are uncomfortable so that you can be comforted. And they share everything they have with you. That's what good friends do. The opposite is true, too. If you have a friend who never cares about you, uh, never asks about you, um, or sacrifices anything for you, but just asks to take from you, eventually you begin to wonder, right, does this person actually like me? love me, or, or, or do they just want like what they can get from me? Real love is self-giving, self-sacrificing, and Jesus for us is the, the prime example of love. As it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, right? He who is rich became poor that you might become rich. Right, not just, Jesus didn't just come to, to, to earth only to return to his treasures one day, right? But he, he came to earth that he might share all of his treasures with you laying down his life that you might have life in him. And to be the children of God means to be born by the spirit of God, which unites us to Christ. And that union with Christ makes us like Jesus. This is the life of the Christian, right? Having Christ formed in us, growing in self-sacrificial love, lays its life down just as Jesus has done. So we ought to do. And he continues here in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, he closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Right? He's carrying the logic out into our, practically into our lives. As Jesus gave all that he has to us, so we will 
So we will if we've been born of him. And if we refuse to share of what we have, of our worldly goods, then there's this question of whether or not we have truly been born of Jesus. And he continues this in verse 18, saying it more clearly. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? Our call is, is not just to say the words, I love you, but to bear the burden of I love you. We must follow this path. This path is the way of love, the way of laying our lives down for each other. How? By sharing all that we have with each other. And I think there's a helpful biblical word that summarizes all of this for us, and it's hospitality. Right? Hospitality is this great word in scripture, it's this compound word, it's flocks in us, which means love of stranger. It, it means treating the outsider like a member of the family, sharing your worldly goods with them. Which when this is talking about worldly goods, he's not speaking about the bad things of the world. But the word for goods here is, is a word called bios, which is where we get the word biology from, which means life. He's talking about sharing all the things that sustain our lives with each other. The things that a family has, we share those and extend those out to each other, right? Our food, our shelter, the warmth of the family, friendship. This is what we share with each other when we love. And when we are born as children of God, we don't just, aren't just called to share some of ourselves, right? Jesus, Jesus didn't partially step out of heaven. Right? Jesus was fully present, fully God, fully man. And Jesus today still has a human body. He shared all of his life with us. And so we're called to share all of our life with each other. The giving of our life is the way to true life. And it unites us to Christ who gave his life for us. In this, we must reject the way of Cain. Right? The absence of love, which that love that lives just for itself. And we must follow the path of Christ, which is the presence of love, which leads us to give all that we have for the sake of each other. And this all sounds very good. And I think probably almost everyone in this room, I would hope would affirm these truths. The tension for us, and maybe you're feeling this, is that we always bounce between these two identities in our hearts, don't we? All right, uh, we aren't consumed by hate. But there are those people we just strongly, strongly dislike, right? And because, uh, you know, you can't hate people because you're a Christian, so you just dislike them a lot. And, uh, um, and, you know, we share what we have with each other, but not our bios, right? We don't share all of our lives with each other. We just share part of them. We hedge. And so if this is supposed to be a passage that is meant, and the purpose of this passage is to give us assurance of our faith, assurance that we are children, it doesn't seem like John's doing a very good job of it, is he? And he anticipates this question, right? Like he always does in his writing here, timely coming back to the deep truths of the gospel, the, the foundation for all that he's saying. That yes, God expects us and calls us to behave like his children, but it's not our behavior that makes us born again. And even when we, we struggle to act and give acts of, of love, God never struggles to act in love towards you and I. Because he poured out his bios, his life, when we were still his enemies. Not because of any good in us, but because of the fount of goodness in him that never runs dry, which leads us to this last little bit, which is the assurance of love. Look with me back here at verse 19. He says this, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Listen, John knows that your hearts will tremble. Uh, he knows that we're going to wonder, how can I know what our true identity is? And he says this in verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. This verse is the rub, isn't it? Our hearts condemn us. I think you all in this room probably know what it feels to have your hearts condemn you. 
Your hearts know, know how ugly you can be sometimes, how much hate and bitterness can linger. And because of this, your hearts condemn you. Right? Your heart's this little courtroom inside of ourselves that pronounce a verdict and say you're guilty. You're not a son of God. And uh, this is especially hard for us because we can't escape the messaging of our world that, that says, you know, you just listen to your hearts, right? Follow your heart. In our world, our heart is the truest thing about us, which is, which is like saying our, our loves is the truest thing about us. But what do you do when your heart condemns you? You just read self-esteem books. You just try to pump yourself up and, and try to feel better about yourselves. These tools are grossly inadequate to quiet the courtrooms of our hearts. It can't just shush them. And this is where we find profoundly good news here. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible where he says, there is one greater than your heart. There is one who can quiet the courtroom of your hearts. And what comfort is there in that for us who struggle? In verse 21, he says this, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. He's saying, listen, your heart can no longer condemn you because God is greater than your heart. So not even your heart can condemn you. How? How is this possible? Because Jesus has come and provided a new verdict for you. He's called you righteous, right? To be born of Christ is to be made righteous like he is righteous, not by your own good works, or your, you, your works will never be good enough, but by the good work of the son, right? What made Cain wicked? Well, Hebrews tells us that it was actually a lack of faith, right? It was Abel's faith that made him righteous, not his own works, but faith, which is a gift from God. Friends, you are no longer children of Cain. You are no longer under the enslavement of death and hate, but you are now a child of the father. This is who you are. By faith, you're united to Christ, enslaved now to love and life. And now because this is inside, you can't help but love others. And now that the spirit whom God has given to us abides in us, he tells us. Speaking the truth, the verdict of Christ to our feeble and frail hearts, reminding you who you are, helping us to obey his commandments, which, is to, which he says are to believe in his son and to love others. These commandments that he gives us are not burdensome, requiring some checklist of obedience that we can't keep up with, but they're freeing, resting on the obedience of Christ. Believing in Jesus means to believe that he is who he said he was, the righteous one. Believe that he is the one who died and gave his life that you might have life in his resurrection. I think, you know, as we wrestle with these truths, I think there's a couple things that tend to confuse us in this. The first is this. How do we tell the difference between a condemning heart and the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Right? Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. And one of the things the Spirit does is convicts us of sin. It's one of the Spirit's jobs. And when he does this, he says, hey, you're not living like the child of God in this area in your life. Repent and experience grace and walk in life. How do we know if that is what's happening versus our heart's uh, condemnation? Right? In, in, you know, being accused by the great accuser, which, you know, many of you know this, but the word Satan is actually means accuser. So how do, we, how do we know the difference between his accusations and the conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit? Well, I think that the truth is here, that when we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit always takes us to Christ so that you can be forgiven. This is his job. He will always bring about specific sins. It won't be some general thing. It will be specific, and he will lead you to forgiveness and assurance. He will always lead you back to Jesus because that is, he is the Spirit of Christ living inside of you. Versus the accuser, who will make broad statements and make you feel like you aren't a child of God. 
He will call you ugly. He will call you unwanted. He will leave you hopeless. Friends, if this is what you hear in your heart, this is not the voice of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God convicts so that you know that you are a child to correct our lives and call us to himself. He does not call you ugly. He calls you the beloved. And this leads to, I think, one of the second big confusions we have with John in this section, which is mixing up this kind of theological conversation of what we have between uh, justification and, and sanctification, which are big words. And uh, quickly, justification is this. It's this verdict that Jesus gives you when you become his children. It's not something you earn. There's nothing you can do to achieve it. It is a gift of faith because it is a, because it is a gift that is founded in Christ. It is a, a gift that's never taken away. It's never rescinded. And so justification is the beginning of the Christian life. It's being born again and given this verdict that you are now righteous. You are now forgiven. You are now our son. And this new identity supersedes the verdicts of our hearts that call us unrighteous. So justification is kind of beginning of our life with God. It, it says that you are now a child, full stop, fully righteous, fully beloved. And sanctification is the process that we live in in our daily lives where we're growing into that righteous, where we're growing into our children of God. It's kind of like raising our own children up in the, as children of God. It's maturing. It's not chasing a verdict, but the verdict that we already have been given is our foundation, our launching pad into our lives. And when children of God struggle, we never have to worry about our justification, that we are indeed children. The thing that we are working through is sanctification, right? What does it mean to grow as children? What is it? Learning to have Christ formed in us, growing in our loves, learning how to love each other. Because what he's talking about here is hard for us. We still struggle. We will struggle with this till the day that we die. But we can be assured that we are his children, that we are justified because we believe in Jesus. And we strive to love Even when we struggle to love, we ask God to help us, and he does help us. And the very fact that you are trying is a sign of a new nature that is born within you. This is why John's writing here is actually assuring the church and assuring us, because he is saying you are children, grow in it. The fact that you desire to be a believer in Christ and to believe in him and to love as he did is assurance that you are indeed his child, because children of Cain would never even try or want to try. And so what does this look like uh, for us at St. Andrews to learn how to love? Indeed, well, there's a thousand things we could probably say. I'm just going to say this, that at least firstly, that we can't love each other well in this room if we don't know each other. You know, 1 John is one of the foundation letters to even our vision of what we hope our home groups will become uh, this fall here at St. Andrews, a a place and a home to share our, our bios, our lives with each other. Um, sharing your life with each other is hard. Uh, you know, the idea of having a group of people who you live life and community with always sounds good when you're talking about it until you actually do it. And you're like, oh, these people are messy. I don't know if I like these people. Oh, can I be with those people? I like those people. It's hard to share, actually share your life with each other because life is messy. We still struggle with sin, which means you're going to hurt each other. But because we're all still growing in Christ, we can trust and in, in, and and experience and and extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to one another. So I think the the first thing that we do is we give ourselves to knowing each other in this room, giving ourselves to each other, practicing that love. You're never gonna be able to love out there in the world if you can't love the people here who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Which leads to the second aspect is as we learn how to love each other well in this room, 
that always will extend, and I mean it always will extend to loving those outside this room. It, and love does not mean you affirm everyone and what they believe. And this is often where I think the, the world gets love wrong, but it means that you're gonna lay down your life for your neighbor. This is where it means where you share your bias, your life, the things that are life-giving for you with your neighbor. And we don't have to be afraid of this because Christ first served us while we hated him. And he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He wasn't afraid to be called names by the religious elite of the day, but he saw people in need and served them. And this is what we're called to do, to step into the messiness of a broken world, not to condemn, but to serve. As you see a neighbor in need, it'll, it'll take you to interesting places if you just actually trust the Lord and help meet those needs. We're here to serve the sick, to be a hospital for the dying, that we might share with them the life that has been shared with us. And as you do this, you will be a light in the darkness. Right? The world says that it wants love, but has no idea what that is until they encounter the people of Christ living this out in word and deed. When we as a community model this in the world, people notice and they will come to the light. May we be a people who learn to love as we have been loved, sharing our lives with all those in need for the glory of Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word which breathes life in us. I pray that you would continue to transform us, that we would look more and more like you every day, learning to love each other, learning to lay down our lives for each other as you have laid down your life for us. Grant us this grace to grow in. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.